Hey everyone, this is Cobain the Christian. I know I said today that I would have the interview with my brother up on Saturday, which is today, but I'm actually going to have it up tomorrow, so sorry for the delay. Uh, if you have not already become a patron, if you are financially able, please consider making a monthly donation to my Patreon. Uh, it's important to the uh, continued quantity and quality of content on this channel, and the full interview will be premium content for those who contribute $10 or more. Nevertheless, a good portion of the interview will be available universally on YouTube. So today what I want to do is I want to continue our discussion of apophatic theology. This is going to be the second and possibly last video in our series, though I suspect we are only going to cover two slides here, and we're going to have one more video afterwards to finish it up. So, Here's the key point I want to begin with. When we say apophatic theology, we are not waving our hand vaguely towards some concept of mystery, a concept of mystery which we can then conveniently invoke whenever anybody makes an argument that we can't answer or whenever anybody gives a, uh, an apparent incoherent aspect of Christian doctrine. Sometimes this is used in defense of the Trinity. God is both one and three, but it's a mystery, so we don't know how God is one and three at the same time, which is an absurd defense, and it's actually not particularly complicated to explain why this is not a logical contradiction at all. God is one and he is three, but he's one and three in two distinct senses. And there are lots of examples of things in the world which are one and three or one and five or two and four in distinct senses. We can say humanity is one and that humanity has one nature. We can say that humanity is one and eight billion, or we can say humanity is one and 300 if we're classifying the human family according to the number of nations or according to the number of individual persons, you know, and so on and so forth. God is one and three and two distinct senses, and we're going to talk about those senses in this very slide. So when we say that God is to be understood apophatically, first of all, we are speaking specifically of the divine essence. To say that God is to be understood apophatically is to say that God in his essence exists beyond being. And note that being has a verbal sense to it. That ending, ing, ing, is used of verbs. Because the word be is so common, we don't tend to think of it in verbal categories, but it actually is a verb. And this pertains very specifically and um, very illuminatingly, I don't know if that's a word, to the concept of the divine energies, which we will talk about in the next slide, I believe. But the statement that God exists as beyond being has a very specific and very coherent logic, which is deductive in its nature. In other words, there are theological premises involved in the statement that God is beyond being, which lead deductively and necessarily, if the logic is sound and the premises are true, to the conclusion God exists beyond being and thus beyond intelligibility. The relationship between those two statements is discussed in the next slide. And so anybody who talks about apophatic theology as an attempt to denigrate the um, vocation of entering into the mystery of Christ by unfolding it systematically simply doesn't know what he or she is talking about. In fact, in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, the language of mystery is usually used when it concerns a divine revelation. There is a mystery, but it is set forth in Christ. The mystery of Christ, Paul says, is the one in whom 
all wisdom and knowledge is contained. Well, wisdom and knowledge, this concerns explicit uh, concepts which can be verbalized and known intelligibly in relation to each other. Mystery has more to do, in my opinion, with cataphatic theology, that is, the theological approach which makes positive predications of God, than it does with apophatic theology, though cataphatic and apophatic theology are both important. And as I said at the end of the last video on this subject, the real purpose of apophatic theology is the affirmation of the biblical doctrine of divine sovereignty, divine infinity, and a qualifier which protects the integrity of cataphatic theology and elucidates the way in which it is really possible to make cataphatic predications of God. And even when we speak of the apophatic theological method, we are still, in one sense, saying things about God. To say that we can make negations of God is not the same thing as saying we can't say anything at all. Now, the negations themselves are relativized in certain patristic texts. Nevertheless, when we speak of God according to essence, it is more true to make a, a, a negation than it is to make an affirmation. And we can make affirmations on account of the energies. But we talked about that in the slide discussing the ins and the omnis in the last video. So I want to start off here by talking about the Trinity and the inner logic which makes the Trinity intelligible. Now the Trinity, as a doctrine, is inseparable from the logic of the essence energies distinction. Some people have criticized the doctrine of the divine energies in that it apparently replaces the role that Christ and the incarnation takes in patristic theology with a notion of energies. In other words, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, exists in relation to the Father as he who makes God known, and the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity is the means by which we come to know God truly and enter into a real authentic community communion with the uncreated God. And these critics suggest that for Palamas and the Orthodox tradition which followed Palamas, to place the energies in this position, to suggest that we can become communicants in the uncreated life of God through the energies, makes the second person of the Trinity in the Incarnation superfluous. These two, uh, these two concepts, that of the Logos and that of the energies, seem to play the same role. But that's actually not the case, though I think it is a legitimate criticism of some articulations of the essence-energies distinction. The doctrine of the energies is a Christological doctrine. In the future, I'll make a video just about the essence-energies distinction. But it is a Christological doctrine. If it is not articulated Christologically, it is not being articulated at all. And the way that you know this in the history of the church is you look at the first major point in dogmatic theology where energy is playing a key role. And that's not in the Palamite controversy. It's at the Sixth Ecumenical Council. If you're familiar with the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Sixth Council was the council which discussed the implications of the relationship between Chalcedon and the Second Council of Constantinople. Chalcedon affirms that the one person of Christ exists in two natures, and the Fifth Council, uh, Fifth Ecumenical Council, Second Council of Constantinople, discusses the way in which this relates to and does not contradict the Third Ecumenical Council, such that the divine unity of Christ in his single divine hypostasis is preserved. And at the Sixth Ecumenical Council, several different heresies are condemned, even though they're all related to each other. 
One of them is the most well-known, monothelitism. This is the idea that Christ has only one will, a divine will. The argument there was that because will is a predicate of personhood and Christ is a divine person, Christ has only a divine will. Now, Maximus's response to this, upon which the Sixth Council depended, said, no, will is a predicate of nature, even though it is actuated in a personal way, in an irreducibly hypostatic way. But the power of willing, that is the capacity to utilize will, is something which belongs to nature. So Christ has two powers of willing. He has a divine power of willing, and he has a human power of willing. Nevertheless, Christ as one person, a divine person, has one mode of willing. That is, a divine mode of willing, and one mode of existing, a divine mode of existing, such that the human mode of will and the human mode of existence, or the human energies, are expressed and actualized in a divine uh, modality. Okay? And monothelitism was condemned along with monoenergism. Monoenergism is the idea that Christ has only one energy rather than two energies. And the fact that monoenergism is understood as a distinct heresy from um, monophysitism, that is the idea that Christ only has a divine nature, suggests that nature and energy are two distinct things. When I say distinct, I don't mean separate. They can't exist without one another. They have a specific and articulate relationship with one another. Nevertheless, they are not the same thing. It is not a merely notional distinction where the distinction is basically um, because of our human limitations. So I'll get into that more in the next slide, but here I want to talk about the Trinity. Um, God self-exists. Okay, that means he doesn't depend for his existence on anything else. His God subsists in and of himself and thus is the necessary and implied backdrop for every creature which exists. By the very fact of creation's existence, it depends on a constant participation in God who exists in and of himself and endows the world with, it exist, with its existence, not only at some point in the past, but at every moment in time. This is why atheists are wrong when they say that the burden of proof lies upon the theist, because the theist supposedly is making an additional claim, namely that God exists, for which we have no evidence in their opinion, uh, whereas the atheist simply uh, chooses, sees no evidence for it, and thus the null hypothesis is lack of belief. Now, this is wrong because atheism and Christianity, or atheism and theism, or more specifically naturalism and theism, are not a difference of opinion only on whether God exists. It's a different interpretation of the world. It's a different ontological elucidation of what it means for the world to exist as the world. For, because for the classical theist, what it means for the world to exist is for it to exist in a relation of dependence upon God. Thus, the naturalist who says that God probably does not exist is by implication making a positive statement about the inner essence of the world. But what does it mean for God to self-exist? 
The Trinity is not some contingent statement. It's not as if, yes, in the real world that we live in, God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, but in it's, it's possible, given the nature of God, that he could exist only as the Father, or that he could exist as Father, Son, and Spirit, and some fourth divine person. No, what it means for God to exist is for him to exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we unpack the inner essence of what we mean, I'm not using essence to refer to the essence of God, but the essence of the concept, when we unpack what we mean by the word God, we will find that the concept logically unfolds into the theology of the Trinity. So God the Father, according to his divine perfections, subsists, that is, finds his concrete realization as God the Father in and only in the mutual and loving self-disclosure, which is the communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, this has massive implications, not only for theology proper, that is our doctrine of God, but for ontology in general, that is our doctrine of everything that exists and for what it means for a thing to exist. Because of the fact that God exists in and of himself, and because of the fact that everything contingent thus depends upon God for its existence at every moment, and because of the fact that what it means for God to exist in and of himself means for him to exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relationship of mutual interiority, this means that everything in the creation bears some kind of relationship to this Trinitarian mode of life. Peter Lightheart, in his book Traces of the Trinity, explores how at many levels in the life of the world, the relation of mutual interiority, that is one thing exists in another thing, and that thing exists in the first thing, mutual interiority, which constitutes the life of God, is reflected in the life of the world. Let me give you one example. Lightheart points out that the human being, an individual human being, exists in the world. We move around in it, we live in it, it's our context. And yet, the world exists in us as well. We are made up of world stuff. We eat, and that stuff becomes part of us. In fact, the world, when taken uh, as a whole, includes the individual human being who lives in the world. So I am in the world, and the world is in me. Another example, which I won't get into beyond just mentioning it, is he suggests that the future exists in the present, and the past exists in the present. And the past and the present exist in the future. There is a mutual interiority to these three aspects of time, which I think has a lot to say in relation to the orthodox elucidation of time, at least according to the Greek fathers and Demetrius Sonaloi. So to exist means to exist in communion. This is the essence of John Zerulis's book, being as communion. Being means to exist in communion. Now, I'm not endorsing everything said in that book, but the title depends in its inner logic on this idea. So an energy is an actuality. This is such an important point. You're familiar with the traditional uh, terminology of potency and actuality. So let's take something which exists. It has a nature, and that nature has a set of qualities. Now, those qualities which it already possesses, which are intrinsic to its nature, that is, what makes it what it is. Say there's a bluebird. One of its qualities is the quality of being blue. And that blueness is not some kind of accident. It's not disconnected from it being the specific kind of creature that it is, that is a bluebird. No, the quality of blueness is intrinsic to its nature. 
But there are also potential qualities, and that means a quality which is not presently manifest, but which nevertheless belongs to the meaning of what it means to be that particular creature and will be expressed as it is actualized through time. How is it actualized? It is actualized when it uh, transforms the potentiality into actuality by means of an efficient cause. An efficient cause, like say the energy that a bird gets from uh, food, well, that energy is utilized to transform a potential into an actuality. Well, an ergea is the word which is translated energy. And it is the word which is translated actuality. It is a massive mistake to forget the intimate connection that the doctrine of the energies has with the notion of actuality in this classical sense. For a thing to exist is for it to exist with actualities, with energies. And energy is also an activity. Now, these two words would be indistinguishable in the Greek language, at least in any technical and recognized sense. But in the English language, we are able to distinguish these two features of the notion of energy. And when we speak of activity, we're speaking of a relative motion. Now, when I say relative, I mean in relation to. So let's consider relative motion through space. The principle of relativity says that motion is only intelligible in a relative sense. That is, we can't say that something moves absolutely unless we have an absolute background to interpret it in light of. And even then, the absolute background would simply be a larger stage in which we are measuring relative motion. We are able to mathematically quantify the motion of the um, Earth and the Moon in relation to each other, but in a larger sense, the mathematics undergirding saying the Moon revolves around the Earth are identical if you want to consider the Moon the center, um, central frame of reference. And this speaks to a theological and a philosophical truth, with it, which is that everything can be considered in one manner or another the center of existence. Everything that happens, has ever happened, or will ever happen bears in some way or another on your individual life. The story of creation can be told coherently as the story of how God produced you and glorified you as a son of God and as the end of existence as a whole. The same is true for me. The whole story can be told in relation to me or my mom, or my dad, or just some rando across the street. The whole story can be told in relation to every individual human being. The whole story could be told in relation to Mars, because everything has an impact on everything else. And that is why the kind of motion, which is significant, is relative motion. And remember, relation has this quality of significance because God exists in an intrinsic tripersonal relation. We can speak of God as father of the son, that is with the emphasis upon the fatherhood, who loves the son by the Holy Spirit, who communicates the love of the father to the son. We can also speak of God with an emphasis on the person of the son, that is the son exists as son of the father, who receives and reciprocates love from the Holy Spirit. Or we could consider the spirit as the emphatic point of Trinitarian life. We could say that the spirit exists as he who is loved and carries love from the father to the son. Now, all three ways of speaking are equally true. It is merely a matter of 
perspective and it accentuates the essential importance of relationality to our doctrine of God and by implication to our doctrine of the world. And this is why you have language like ecstasis. Think of the word ecstasy. When you hear the language of divine ecstasy, you know, a person enters into the uncreated life of God, they have an experience of the uncreated light, and they receive the gift of tears. Uh, tears has a theological and symbolic significance because um, at the top of Mount Eden, there's the spring of the water of life, and the word for I is actually the same word as the word for well in the Hebrew language. The divine life is communicated in a symbolic sense in the symbolic geography of the primeval world in which Adam lived. It is communicated through that holy water which flows from Mount Eden to the world. We speak in the Orthodox Church of confession as a renewal of our baptism. It's not something separate from it, but it's kind of like how the Eucharist is a um, expression of the singular event of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So also is confession the baptism of tears. Tears uh, uh, cleanses our soul in this sense. So divine ecstasy is manifest in tears. And ecstasis, there are two Greek words here. There's the preposition ek, which means out of, and stasis means what it means in English, uh, being still. One goes out of oneself. One moves towards another. And in that movement, one ceases to be still. God, in existing, is moving infinitely fast because the Father extends himself towards the Son through the Spirit. He goes out of himself in relation to the beloved Son, and the Son receives that love from the Spirit and reciprocates it by the Spirit to the Father, and that all happens simultaneously. In other words, there is no gap between the Father's love of the Son and the Son's answering reciprocation of that love to the Father. We see this relationship expressed in time in the incarnate life of the Son. Consider the baptism of our Lord, which is called the Theophany, because it's a revelation of the life of God. Jesus is baptized. Note the significance of water in light of what I just said. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit is sent from the Father upon the Son, and the Father says, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's an allusion to Isaiah 42, by the way, where the servant is he in whom I delight. So the Father sends his love to the Son by expressing it in speech. And then the Son answers in love to the Father, because what happens? The Spirit, the same Spirit who has just expressed the love of the Father for the Son, the Spirit, says the evangelist Mark, drives Jesus out into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, Jesus embraces the Father as the supreme governing principle in his life. Man shall not live by bread alone. Uh, he refuses to disobey God in any of the temptations, and that is an expression of his reciprocal love for the Father, by that very same Spirit. Kinesis. Kinesis. We can think about this in its English cognate, kinetic energy. It's this idea of motion again. Kinesis is one of these terms which is used in relation to existence, in relation to divine energy. En ergea. You can see that there are two Greek words here. There's en, which is a prepossession, in, and then there's ergea, which is a, uh, an inflection of the word ergon, 
ergon is the word which is translated work in the New Testament. So en ergeia, think of a work, an act, folded in upon itself, which is then unfolded in particular acts. So a husband loves his wife from day to day, and it's the same love throughout the whole relationship, but there are particular instantiations of that love. The husband one day might get his wife flowers, the next day he might empathize with her or whatever. And I'm not trying to make a statement in itself on marriage. I'm making the point that there is a distinction between the energy itself and the particular instantiations of that energy. So God's life in itself does not depend on the creation of the world. Nevertheless, the creation of the world is an act of God which constitutes an expression of that uncreated life. So... When the conceptual content of both God and exists is unpacked, it means that God the Father embraces the Son in perfect knowledge. He knows the Son perfectly. He dwells in the Son perfectly. Note how in Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, in describing headship, he says, God is the head of Christ. And he also says in the same context, man is the head of woman. So the marital relationship is symbolic, among other things, of the Father's love of Jesus Christ. Now, this is why the bride is often spoken of in terms of the household. And the household includes children, like the son. Okay, So consider children who are still in the household as part of the bride. This is why, by the way, uh, young boys, prepubescent boys, have high voices. And girls have high voices. All human creatures, as receptive and reciprocal creatures, start out after a fashion as feminine. And feminine is not the same thing as female, by the way. All creatures start out as feminine, and males grow into a masculine relation when they hit puberty. If that doesn't make any sense to you right now, just set it aside in your mind. I'll get to it uh, at a future point. But my point is that there's a relationship between the father's relation to the son and the husband's relationship uh, to the wife, which is why, by the way, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom, who is the pre-existent Christ, is described in bridal terms. It's because the son is he who receives the love of the father and reciprocates it. And that's the distinction between masculine and feminine. And again, that's not the same thing as male and female. Great passage from C.S. Lewis and Paralandra on that. Not the same thing as male and female. I will have a future video just on this topic of masculinity and femininity. The father moves towards the son, and the son receives and reciprocates it. Even though it's not a temporal relation, it is a masculine and feminine relation. The same relation which exists between Christ and the church. There, Christ is masculine, the church is feminine. Same relation which exists between um, husband and wife, which is why... What is the act which produces children? It is when man knows his wife. So the father moves out of himself in relation to the son and totally embraces him by the Holy Spirit, by the love of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in that, in that total mutual interiority, in the conjugal act, there is a literal bodily mutual interiority. That's not crude to say. It was invented by God. Um, there is a total mutual interiority between the father and the son. Each of them know each other comprehensively and totally through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, if you want to see how this relates to the Filioque, go watch my video on the Filioque. Um, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the father. But to say that he is the spirit of the father 
implicitly presupposes the presence of the son. It's a logical precondition. Because think about it. You can't have a father unless you have a son. So when we say God the Father, the son is already implicitly present there. Well, when we say the Spirit proceeds from the Father, we're saying the Spirit proceeds from the Father of the Son. And the Father, as he who exists in and of himself, actualizes himself perfectly, because that is what it means to be God, to be fully existent in every way that it is possible for anything to exist. All of those perfections belong to God. And in order for that to be true, in order for that to be the case, in order for God the Father to truly exist in and of himself, the Son must be generated as he in, in relation to whom the Father moves, and the Spirit must proceed from the Father in order to manifest and therefore to actualize not only God's life, but the mutuality of God's life, which is a quality of what it means for God to exist as fully and infinitely existing. So the Father has the Son intrinsically, and he has the Spirit intrinsically, as he in whom and through whom he loves the Son. Palamas speaks of this in um, uh, 150 chapters, chapters, believe it is 36 to 38. Um, to, think, to, to understand this point about mutuality, think about the relationship in a stable and healthy family and compare it to the relationship in a broken family. Now, in a broken family, normally both the mother and the father, the ex-husband and ex-wife, will still love their children. I'll always say, oh, I still, we still love you. Nevertheless, the child, even though he usually can't articulate why, feels that something horrible has happened. Something has been lost. But why is that the case? Before, when they were still married, his mother and father loved him. They still love him just as much as they did beforehand, most likely. So what exactly is it that has been lost? It is a mutuality to that love. Because the love, in order to be perfected as love, must be mutual by those who love. The love of the mother and the father for their children is greater, more perfect, more exalted, more like God's love when it is a love which is cooperatively and coordinately expressed. When mother and father love each other and are themselves interior to one another in love, that singular love can in communion be expressed to their children so that the reality of communion itself can be actualized by expression. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father exists in and of himself. God is autotheos. That's what it means when we say God is autotheos. And the Father as the source of the Trinitarian God is autotheos. He exists in and of himself. The Son depends on the Father for his existence by generation or begetting. The Spirit depends on his, is, depends on the Father for his existence by spiration or by procession. And the Son and the Spirit complete and perfect what it means for God to exist as God, what it means for God the Father to be God the Father. The content of this relation, so what is it when we say that God loves the Son by the Spirit, when we say that he moves out of himself in relation to the Son by the Spirit, what is it that is moving, as it were? The content is these divine processions. 
okay? So a divine procession, as we discussed in our last video, this is a divine self-extension outwards. And existence always concerns hypostatic subjects. A person, by the way, is a specific sort of hypostasis, but a hypostasis in general is a particular thing. It's an instantiation of a nature. And nature never exists alone. It always exists at, in instantiated and particularized form. So the content of the ecstatic and, and, uh, and perfectly loving self-disclosures, these are the divine processions. And the reciprocal motion, this is really important, of the Son to the Father by the Spirit describes these processions in their being returned to God. And so remember how in my last video we talked about procession and reversion, okay? These are two aspects of a single mutual motion which explains what the creation, what it means for the creation to exist as the creation. So God extends himself outwards creatively in relation to the world or in relation to nothing, in relation to that which does not exist. He gives of himself to freely constitute creaturely things as imprints of eternal qualities which exist in his own divine life. And in virtue of the fact that created things exist as participations of divine processions, it is an intrinsic and necessary aspect of their existence that they are always reverting inwards to God. So think of it in terms of a river which moves outwards and then returns back inward. Or think of it, here's a better image, in terms of the relationship between rivers and oceans. There are some rivers which flow outwards to the oceans, but then the oceans also give in other bodies of water so that it flows back inward. And this is all part of a single current. Remember how we talked about the notion of current in some of my other videos. God flows outwards freely, actively, personally, and constitutes that which did not have to exist as existent things by the imprint of his nature, or by imprinting his nature. Um, and these created things then flow back inwards to God because they originate as extensions of the divine procession. So that's a single motion in two directions. And we can see procession and reversion in the life of the Trinity itself. The Father moves outwards to embrace the Son by the Spirit. That's procession. And by the way, we're not using procession in the same way that we're using it when we talk about procession of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's an analogical likeness here, but it's not the same sense. I wanna make that clear. There's a procession of the love of the Father in relation to the Son. He embraces the Son by the Holy Spirit. That same procession is that which, in, that which we participate in through our baptism and through the Christian life. And then the Son actively receives that love. So there's never a passivity. It's not that the Father is like throwing a water balloon of love at the Son. The Son receives it and embraces it. When you give someone a hug, if it's a proper hug and it's not going to create immense social awkwardness, that other person has to move in a receptive fashion. If the other person is just totally passive, just totally still, you feel really weird and you think you create, you've uh, committed a social faux pas, which you probably did. But if you haven't committed a social faux pas, you extend yourself forwards and this other person extends him or herself to 
receive what you have given. So the reception is not something passive. It itself is a kind of activity, and that's true for everything in the world. Everything which truly exists in a proper relation has an active giving forth and an active reception from. And the son is he who actively receives it, and then what's more than that, he actively reciprocates it to the father. The son only does what he sees the father doing, says Jesus. And Jesus says, very interesting passage, he says, uh, he has it from the father to have life in himself. So there's the whole theology of the Trinity is wrapped up in that little passage. To have life in yourself, well, that sounds like something you can't receive from anyone. Nevertheless, Jesus, because it's in yourself. Jesus says, I have it from the father because he receives his essence in the act of, or not, I don't want to say act, but in the relation of generation. He receives his existence as the divine person in the very relation which gives him birth. Okay, so he's given birth from the father as and only as the son. His divine existence does not precede his sonship as if his sonship is simply accidental for what it means for him to exist in the first place. So the son receives from the father love, and then he actively receives it, um, embraces it, and then he actively imitates it, directing that love back to the father by the same spirit. This is why the spirit is always associated with communion. The spirit is always the mediator between two persons or between two subjects. Every covenant in scripture symbolically pertains to fatherhood and sonship and to husband and wife because uh, the relation of bride and bridegroom itself is an echo of this trinitarian relationship in a distinctive fashion uh, in the fashion of father and son and i've talked about it in exodus chapter 4 we actually see these rolling together in exodus 4 uh, when moses and his wife zipporah returned to egypt this is a pre-echo of the passover the God of Israel comes and says he sought to kill him, and the him refers to Moses' son. That's the nearest noun as reference. People think this is a weird passage, but it's just a reference to Passover. And what happens? Moses and Zipporah circumcised their son. So he wasn't circumcised, just like Israel is not circumcising their kids in the wilderness, apparently by divine command or permission. Um, they're all circumcised when they come into the land. Uh, so Moses and Zipporah, they come into Egypt, just as Israel's going to have the Passover right before they go out of Egypt. And God, the God of Israel comes and he poses a threat to the life of Moses' son. So Zipporah circumcises her son. She takes the blood of that circumcision and she puts it on his leg, just as uh, the blood of the Paschal lamb is going to put on the, be put on the doorpost of the Israelite houses. And then she says to her son, so there's a mother-son relationship, to her son, you have become a bridegroom of blood to me. So here we see how the father-son or the parent-son relation relates and pertains to the bridegroom-bride relation because there's more to the bridegroom-bride relation than the conjugal act. Okay, the conjugal act is a particular expression of what it means for bridegrooms to relate to the bride. This is why uh, the church exists in relation to Christ as last Adam, as new Eve, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, exists as mother of the seed and as new Eve, because God made a promise to Eve that she would be the mother of all living, not just in a genealogical sense, but specifically in the context of the promise that there would be a seed who was going to crush the head of the death-dealing serpent. So Adam gives a prophetic name to his wife, Eve, you are the mother of all living. If you don't believe that connection, just compare it to other acts of naming in scripture. 
Look, if in the primeval history itself, Genesis 5, Lamech names his son Noah because Noah is going to give rest from the toil of the labor. That's the curse of Genesis chapter 3. These prophetic acts of naming to which we're, we are specifically called attention have messianic significance. God says to Eve, you're going to have a seed, you're going to have a descendant who's going to crush the head of the death-dealing serpent and give life to the world. And so Adam says, you're the mother of all living. God made a promise to Eve, and it's fulfilled in Mary. Therefore, Mary is the new Eve. But the church is also the new Eve. People sometimes say, um, in ancient Israel, the, the queen was not the wife of the king. It was the mother of the king. Well, that's not really... I don't really understand why people say that, because, you know, it wasn't so long ago that England had a queen mother. The UK. You know, when Queen Elizabeth's mother was still alive, she was called the queen mother. And that's true in general. Ancient Israel, like other nations, and like today, uh, like modern monarchies, uh, both the bride of the king and the mother of the king are called queens. And so the church is queen of the world, ruler of the world, as bride of the king of kings, as the bride of Christ, and Mary is the queen as mother of the king. And these two interlock because Mary herself is part of the church. She sums up the church. That's why priests have an icon of the Virgin Mary on their vestments, on most of their vestments, because they serve the church and Mary is the personal embodiment, as it were, of the church. Mary embodies what it means for a creature to receive all the gifts and splendors of Christ. Okay, uh, so these processions are how we come to know God. Okay, so these processions are inner Trinitarian processions. Okay, so this is how God exists as communion. Some people say, can you know the life of the Trinity? Well, yes, you can. We don't know generation and procession directly, but we do know the inner life of the Trinity insofar as the love of the Father for the Son by the Spirit and vice versa, and, in, and the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son and so on and so forth. All of those relations, these are eternal, uncreated, and they're intrinsic for what it means for God to be God, and we know them. We share in them. We share in them by the Spirit, directly. People say, is this an indirect relation? No, it's as direct as you can get. We know everything by its energies. The blueness of a bluebird is an energy. It is the intrinsic quality by which a bluebird exists as a bluebird, which means it's manifesting as blue in relation to those creatures with the power or capacity of sight. So there's a mutual relation which always constitutes knowledge. This is direct knowledge. People who say, well, the energy is it's just, this is indirect or it's media, they need to ask themselves, what exactly do I mean by direct relationship? Does that have any conceptual content? And in, in my experience, I think a lot of people use these words and it has no conceptual content. They don't actually know or have any idea what they mean by it. So the very processions which constitute the inner life of God is that which is revealed and given to us through the incarnation, through the outpouring of the Spirit, so that we know Christ by the Spirit, so that we know the Father by Christ, whom we know by the Spirit. And this explains why we are adopted not just as friends of God, or not just as in a happy relationship with God, but in a very specific relationship. We are adopted as sons. Now, we do not participate in what it means for the only begotten Son to be generated. Okay, that is something which we cannot participate in. We can't participate into that which distinguishes a person as an irreducibly unique person because it's that which makes them an irreducibly unique person. If you participated in it, well, then it wouldn't be something which made them irreducibly unique. But we do participate in the mode of his existence insofar as that modality is constituted by an uncreated energy. 
energies are existence and energy is a kind of existence so there are multiple energies they're all coextensive with one another they have to exist together for them to be themselves when we say something exists it means it has actuality it has energies it's not just simply a hypothetical concept and since everything exists particularized there's no nature which exists except through an individuated person or individual hypothesis, I should say, since a person is a specific kind of hypothesis. Um, the energies or the existence or the properties which are intrinsic to the nature are expressed in and through the irreducible unique mode which makes the person the unique person. So everything which it means for God to be God, that is his uncreated energies, his uncreated existence, is expressed in three unique rhythms, as it were. God is God in a fatherly way. God is God in a son-like way. God is God in a spiritual way. God is fully and totally God in three unique modes. And the modality which we share indirectly and come to imitate is sonship. Because even our human nature becomes conformed and harmonized with this divine modality. The divine person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos, is a divine person in that he subsists as a hypostatic um, realization of divine nature. And the hypostatic aspect of it is a mode of existence. And when he hypostasizes human nature, it means that human nature comes to participate in that divine mode of existence, in divine sonship. So we stand in the relation to the Father as sons through the Son. And just as the Father's love of the Son and the Son's love of the Father is expressed and mediated and realized by the Holy Spirit, as he who carries it back and forth, so also the Spirit, called by Paul the Spirit of the Son, is he who brings us into that relationship. Every act of God in the world is some kind of reflection and echo of his inner life, of what makes him who he is from all eternity. The world is a theophany. The world is a theater by which the glory of God is declared to us, and we ourselves are theaters by which the glory of God is declared to the creation. So, um, I was thinking we might go to another slide, but I want to we're already 45 minutes so i want to cut it off here uh, and we will continue to talk about this in the coming week uh, but tomorrow if everything goes as planned i should have that interview up uh, with my younger brother uh, and i also wanted to announce at the end of this video so that it didn't become the main subject of discussion in the comments it looks like if everything goes as planned i'm going to be having a debate online moderated by sam shmoon with matt slick on the biblical doctrine of justification uh, whether it is by imputation transmitted through faith alone. So I would ask your prayers for that. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to it as well. Uh, and with that said, I hope you all have a lovely day.